In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today I'm joined by AJC Washington correspondent Tamar Hallerman to talk about what else, the latest developments and probably the biggest question in 2019 in Georgia, the dual questions, what Democrats are going to run for Senator Isaacson's soon to be vacated seat and who is Governor Kemp going to appoint to that spot? And, and he, more, uh, more importantly, whether he's going to be appointing Kermit the Frog, who did apply <laughs> yesterday to Isaac's seat. That's where we're. That's what I was about to get into. Is is this new process very unusual? Who wants to be a U.S. senator? Type. I wouldn't say it's a game show exactly, but he did open the process to all comers. Anyone who's interested can apply online. He's obviously not going to be vetting all. 1500 of the applicants he ends up getting or however many it is. But um, there's a lot of interesting uh, calculations that come behind this whole uh, online submission process, aren't there? Yeah. And he's leaving it wide open. The only requirements are that you're, you know, you're 30 years old, that you're a resident of Georgia and that you've lived in the state for nine years. So, so really it's anybody's game. And he's not even asking people for references or a cover letter or even any sort of policy paper. So it's truly leaving it open for, for any person to apply here at the same time, you know, he, he has, he, through his aides has kind of made clear um, you know, what they're looking for. They they want somebody serious who can, um, you know, and potentially somebody outside the box, somebody in the business world, potentially, uh, maybe somebody in law enforcement, um, but somebody who can uh, potentially run again in, in 2020 and in 2022. Yeah, whoever this is, whoever he ends up picking is expected, um, I think, to run in 2020, potentially in 2021 when there's a runoff between the two top contenders because this is a jungle special election, and then again, be on a ballot with him in 2022. So when Governor Kemp is facing re-election, so in a sense, he has a chance to pick his own running mate. Um, with with this process, he's what he said is he's hoping, he already knows there's all a bunch of usual conventional contenders that would be really strong picks for him, um, you know, either to uh, energize the base or to expand the party's appeal to, to, to the metro Atlanta suburbs or wh- whatever direction he wants to go. There's lots of potential picks that we've all been talking about for the last few weeks. What he's hoping are some more unconventional picks, you know, people that folks that people weren't, weren't on the tips of people's tongues, folks that weren't part of the chattering class in Atlanta or in political circles have been talking about. And, 
certainly in the first few days of, of this process being open, there's already more than 200 applications. I put the over under stupidly at like 100 or 150 and he, they reached 150 in day one. So um, I'm looking at now probably at least a thousand applicants because it make it's so easy to apply. You don't have to do anything other than you know, click a few buttons and put your resume up there. Um, but some and you know some unusual or some interesting folks have already put their first foot forward. Have already applied. Yeah, exactly. We've seen Public Service Commissioner Tim Eccles, who who has run statewide, but I guess we'd always seen him as, as sort of in the energy community, not necessarily kind of a statewide kind of candidate. Um, we've seen Martha Zoller, who's a former aide to Brian Kemp, apply. We've seen Doug Collins, the congressman from Gainesville, the top Republican on the House Judiciary Committee. We, of course, expected him to apply um, and, and lots of others. You know, you've gotten people totally outside of the realm of politics. And, and it's interesting to see... You know, Kemp has won some praise in his opening months as governor for appointing people to statewide and local positions that that maybe wouldn't have been at the forefront of the chattering class. You know, he he appointed the Doraville police chief, for example, to be insurance commissioner. And I think, you know, this is kind of a, a nod to that to see the the kinds of outsider folks he can get. Um, and and even if they're not going to end up being appointed to this Johnny Isaacson seat, perhaps they can be in the stable kind of ready the next time Kemp has another appointment to make. Yeah. And as you mentioned, he has had a string of unconventional picks, historic picks in many ways. John King, the first insurance commissioner, the, the insurance commissioner he appointed a few months ago is the first statewide Hispanic constitutional officer in Georgia. He picked the first black female DA in a county, the first a black female judge in another in another suburban county. So he's made some some really you know out of the box picks um, for some of these selections. But Senate is a different story. You know, as as much as some people some of his advisors want to go with someone who who might be a a, a sort of jaw dropping pick for a Republican to go with, this is also um, a race that's going to cost an, an unbelievable amount of money, more than $100 million, at least probably. Um, this candidate is going to have to raise 20, 30 million bucks. Um, and it has to, again, be on the ballot not only in 2020, so it's going to directly affect David Perdue and President Trump, who are also going to be on the ballot, but in 2022 with, with Brian Kemp. So it has to be someone strong. He, he's he's going to probably vet someone who's who's totally outside the box, but to actually go with that person um, is going to be a different story. Exactly. And and you mentioned the potential for a runoff in 2021. You know, we've talked about this before on the podcast. This could be that could be a moment when that's the only ongoing Senate race in the country. And potentially that race could determine Senate control, which party controls the Senate. And so that person has to be able to kind of stand alone, to be inspiring enough to draw people out, to come to the polls yet again to vote. It has to be somebody who can raise money, somebody who excites the base, who brings in crossover voters. So they kind of have to do it all. And and not only that, you know, um, President Trump is going to be on the ballot in 2020. He obviously is a close ally to David Perdue. He, you know, his endorsement of Brian Kemp during the Republican gubernatorial runoff really paved the way for, for Kemp to win. And so we kind of know that that Trump's folks are going to be involved in one way or another, or at least, you know, they're going to want to be able to to endorse whoever Kemp picks. So so that's going to be part of the consideration as well. In the meantime, the governor's office is going to get blitzed, blitzed with these with these applications. As I mentioned, 200 plus already. By the time you hear this, there might be hundreds more. Um, many of them are silly. Some of them are serious. 
Um, but but it, the format lends itself to lots lots of kind of phony or or might as well type applications. I've seen some of my neighbors, some of my friends have applied. Um, I've seen some Democrats, some libertarians, a civil rights attorney named Robert Patillo, Patillo applied. Alan Buckley, a libertarian Senate candidate from from past cycles, he applied. Needless to say, they, I don't think either of them will get seriously considered. Um, and then there's a handful of folks who have. We mentioned Tim Eccles. Um, the governor was asked about Tim Eccles' um, his application. He goes, hey, I would never have thought Tim Eccles would, would be up in the running, you know, be considered for this. So he's kind of using that as an example for why this process has been, has been, has been positive because it's, it's, it's forcing some people to step forward who we might not have thought about. Uh, Doug Collins, the congressman from Gainesville is definitely someone who he would have thought about no matter what. He has made it very clear he's interested in this position. And um, really early on, talked to both the governor and President Trump about his interest. Um, he will be a very formidable candidate. And then another name that we we kind of, you know, us in political circles kind of knew was coming, but but maybe the wider public that it was Martha Zoller. She, she actually ran against Doug Collins up in Gainesville a few years ago. Um, she's a radio talk show host, uh, has a well-known, well-known platform, especially up in North Georgia. And she said, look, I know I'm a long shot, but I deserve to be considered. Exactly. And, you know, she's a Republican woman at a time when, you know, there aren't a ton involved in statewide politics right now. So if Kemp is looking to go that route, Zoller could be the person. Um, with the exception, exception of Collins, though, we really haven't seen too many um statewide elect or sorry state elected officials apply yet we're expecting to see a, at least a couple more in the days ahead several members of the congressional delegation up here in Washington whose names have been floated uh, Tom Graves Drew Ferguson um, former congressman Paul Brown who ran for Senate in 2014 an ultra conservative um, up in the Atlanta or no I'm sorry in the Athens area mm-hmm. Um who who told us that he's going to run again? But there are also some statewide uh, officials whose names have been floated. But but because of the very public format of this application process, may not want to put their name in if it's going to be public. Folks like Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor, Chris Carr, the new attorney general, um, Karen Hansel, who uh, the former congresswoman who's running again in the sixth district against Lucy McBath. These are folks who who either just won or have just put their names in to, to run again for a certain position. And it could be a bad look if they're seen immediately kind of turning to get to a, a bigger platform. Yeah, I don't know if this was the intended outcome. I don't know if Kemp's advisors you know, knew what a, a kind of factored into how difficult this process will be for some of these officials. Um, but I think it, they, that could help them out in a way because, you know, both me and you have gotten a ton of phone calls and text messages and, and emails about people who are potentially considered and, and, and who the governor is, is putting on his shortlist and all this stuff that's not really true. Um, but now we can just say, well, has that person applied? <laughs> is that person even in, you know, because they're not going to be even in the running. It really it forces your yeah. it forces your hand truly to, to kind of show, hey, you know, because everyone, when you talk to them on the record, they say, oh, no, 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 I'm happy in my current job. But there's always kind of a twinkle in the eye. But this forces your hand. So in certain ways, I think it's kind of a great strategy on Kemp's part. You know, you're going to keep bothering me behind the scenes. Fine. But you got to put your name forward and declare your interest publicly. Put up or shut up. And you mentioned Karen Handley, the, the former U.S. rep from the 6th District, who's going for a comeback bid. I see it very difficult to imagine her applying because if she applies to run for Senate, 
her two or three Republican opponents in that primary, all they have to do is look, she's more interested in being a senator than your next congresswoman. Um, same thing with some of the newly elected statewide officials. If you're AG Chris Carr, who's very close to Senator Isaacson, was Senator Isaacson's top aide, um, was is seen as a as a credible, viable contender to get this appointment. Well, he has to think about reelection in 2022 if he doesn't get it. Um, and you know, he could be looked at it the same way as, hey, you just got elected to, to a four-year term and now you're already wanting to, to be the next U.S. Senator. Same thing with Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. So it's putting a lot of folks in a tough spot. And already, th- those are just the political folks. Think about the judicial, the judges, the um, law enforcement officials, the, the business executives who could face blowback from shareholders and employees and, and coworkers and you name it. Um, if they put their name out there. And, and we heard already very, very, very early from one potential contender who who some in the governor's office really wanted, uh, r- really thought he could be a serious contender. That's U.S. Attorney B.J. Pack. He's a former Gwinnett State Republican lawmaker of Korean Asian descent. He would be historic pick in many ways. He's now the U.S. attorney in North Georgia handling the, the corruption probe into Atlanta City Hall. And he said very, very quickly that he likes his job just the way it is and he's not interested in, uh, in applying. Yeah, and, and Pack was seen as kind of an interesting pick for, you know, if Kemp was going to try and focus on more of a suburban strategy, if per, if David Perdue is kind of your your conservative pick that's going to rile up the base, particularly in the rural parts of the state, Pack was seen as a guy who could really run in the suburbs and excite folks and be kind of a compliment to David Perdue. And, and one of the things I'm curious about as we go through this application process is whether this kind of put up or, or shut up is going to force a lot of the moderates to sit out or, or would be moderates to sit out. And maybe this means we're going to get more conservative types who, who are already kind of partisan figures who, who don't have to worry as much about kind of appearing central or, or nonpartisan um, like PAC has to do in his current job. Yeah. What it's also forced is uh, much, much more public maneuvering. I mean, we, uh, I read a story a couple of weeks ago about all the behind the scenes stuff going on. There's plenty of that still happening, but now that you have to go out there and publicly declare and remember the moment these folks hit the submit button, it becomes a public record and it might take us a day or two to find out about it, but we'll find out. I mean, we're, we're filing open records requests and, and in constant contact with the governor's office, who has been very um, transparent about all these resumes. They, they'd be giving us access to the redacted versions of the resumes fairly quickly. Um, so the moment they push that button, it's a public record. So they're publicly out there. And we mentioned Tim Eccles, the public service commissioner, who is not on really anyone's radar um, before this. Well, not only has he submitted it, but he's gone on radio shows and TV and on Twitter. And right now he's he's all over Twitter as I speak, tagging me in tweets about basically trying to make his case. Um, that could also has a big time potential to backfire. You know, the, the, the there's lots of folks in the governor's office who, who very concerned about that sort of public, the public jockeying, and they don't want to feel like they're being pressured by anyone to pick them. Um, but hey, look, we're in a new phase now. And uh, no one really, no, no one's really been through this before this online submission process. So no one knows how it will play out. Um, clearly, though, and I keep on getting texts about this from potential uh, candidates saying, "Do we really have to apply?" And every indication I get is, "Yeah, you, you, you can't." You know, the governor did not set a deadline either, so he didn't say like you have two weeks to apply. So um, you know, to to try to force people to to wait till the last minute. There is no last minute waiting when you don't have a deadline. And if he picks, if he ends up picking someone 
who didn't apply, then imagine the backlash he'll face from the public and from the media of like, so why'd you make everyone go through this sham process? So I fully expect him to to be, kind of be forced to pick someone who who applied. Yeah. And I think at, at this point, you, you do see some current elected officials kind of hanging back and waiting and seeing who's applying, seeing if they get any more um, signals from the governor. I talked to one current official yesterday who, who had definitely... Um, suggested they were interested and sent those signals to the governor, but but who were almost a little bit not hurt by the process, but kind of like, oh, well, well you know, we signaled our intention, you know, and, and the governor still went with this really public process. Maybe maybe the governor doesn't want me to run or maybe they're, they're looking for another signal to, to say, OK, it's worth your time to go through the public ridicule because you will be on the short list. So it'll be interesting to see how many go ahead and apply in the days ahead or if you see kind of a spate right at the end when it becomes clear that, that Kemp is kind of winding down, who just apply the last day or the last couple hours because they think they'd, they'd be on that list. Yeah. And, and I, we mentioned Chris Carr um, the attorney general whose wife is Senator Isaacson's top aide. He was Senator Isaacson's top aide. He just won a, a real, a, a full term as attorney general. He was appointed by governor deal a few years ago. Um, he's in a really tricky spot too. I mean, he's folks close to him have made it, made it clear in no uncertain terms that he is not publicly jockeying for this spot, that he has not made phone calls. He's not been trying to do a lot of the behind the scenes stuff that some of the other contenders um, have done. Now that this, this online process is out there. Does he, does he apply? Um, is he even, you know, even if he thinks he doesn't really have a, you know, he might not think he has a great shot at it, but does, does he still apply? Um, that that's completely unknown. I reached out to pretty much every, every top can, you know, top contender that was on the, on the radar and most, none of them pu- would publicly say whether they would apply. Many of them had private thoughts, which I can't get into. Um, but there was, a, I'll, I'll suffice to say, what I can say is that there was a lot of, there was a lot of surprise and shock at this, at this online process. And as you mentioned, some, some even hurt feelings. As, and as vocal as the Republican jockeying is for this seat, you know, the Democrats, uh, we haven't really seen too many public moves really until until this past uh, couple of days, right, Tamar? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, while they're not really gunning for the Kemp appointment, they, they know that Kemp is going to go with a, a Republican. You know, sure. there's, there's a question of who's going to transition to to begin running in, in November 2020. Um, and, and just yesterday, you and I reported that that Lucy McBath, the, the sixth district freshman congresswoman who was seen as as kind of a potential front runner, should she enter the race decided that she didn't want to um, to run for Senate. She was going to continue to run for a second term in the House. And, and she was being lobbied heavily by state and national Democrats who who saw her as, as kind of somebody with a really powerful personal story who could take on whichever Republican uh, Kemp ends up appointing. Um, and she said, look, I'm a freshman. I'm still kind of learning my way around. There's still a ton I want to do in the House on gun control, which is her central issue, as well as veterans affairs and, and other issues. So that that truly opens things up for a slate of other Democrats whose names have been floated. Yeah, this is really important because a lot of the Democrats we've been speaking to have been waiting for Lucy McBath's decision. Um, because now that Stacey Abrams is has said that she's not running for Senate, she's the top Democrat in Georgia, and so everyone's eyes were on her first. Um, a lot of those eyes shifted to to Lucy McBath. Um, she won such a high profile race last year uh, in the sixth district is a proven fundraiser, 
has a lot of support, especially from gun control groups nationally. So she knows she can she can raise that money. She has a she has a you know her, the tragic story of her of her teenage son's shooting death um, also lends her a, you know just a powerful narrative out there. So she was seen as a very very viable contender. And national Democrats, uh, especially in Washington, were trying to recruit her to run. Meanwhile, over at the House. You know, Nancy Pelosi and her allies were begging her to stay because there's no, uh, she just won a seat that cost more than 20 million bucks or so to, to win. And there's no really high profile Democrat waiting in the wings who could, who could, who could run. I mean, I'm sure there would be a half dozen or so candidates within a minute, but there's no one seen as a, someone who could feel, step, step right into her, her shoes and try to defend that seat for Democrats, because that was probably the that was the Democrats biggest win in Georgia last year. Exactly. And and the one person who maybe could the closest thing to to kind of a, a follow up if Lucy were to run for were to have decided to run for Senate um, is Jen Jordan, the, the state senator who uh, who won a special election in 2017 and who's become a really kind of vocal voice for the party on the the heartbeat bill on the sterogenics plant in, in Cobb County. And now she's being floated as a potential candidate for Senate as well. Yeah, I mean, look, there's about there's still about a dozen potential Democratic candidates, and you know they, they run the gamut. Um, but but Senator Jordan was always kind of looking at Senate. Um, she doesn't. She she lives in Barry Loudermilk's district to begin with, so it'd be really hard for her. She could still run for the sixth district, but um, I think she had kind of closed off that possibility from the get go. And and I think a lot of Democrats were waiting on on Lucy, as I mentioned, Representative McBath. Um, there's still so many names out there. Jen Jordan is one of them. Um, she's 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 very much considering running from from what she's told folks, including me. Um, she she would be a formidable candidate. She'd be a fundraiser. Um, there's a lot of others. So Michelle Nunn, who ran in 2014 for Senate, lost to David Perdue. She could try to angle for a rematch. Although one of the one of her drawbacks is she's pretty much disappeared from the political world. She's still working at the nonprofit she's run um, for years, but she has not been involved in Demo- actively involved in democratic po- politics for the last couple of years ever since her her defeat. Um, Michael Thurman, the DeKalb CEO. He's very much exploring a race as well. He ran against Senator Isaacson way back in 2010 and lost. Um, his, his, I think one of his biggest downfalls would be fundraising, but this is a whole different cycle. So fundraising might be a lot easier suddenly now that Georgia has two 2020 Senate races on the ballot. Nakima Williams, the chairwoman of the state Democratic Party, is looking at it. Um, Lindy Miller, who who was the runner-up in a, in a public service commission race last year, she's looking at it. So the list goes on and on and on. Um, Sherry Boston, the, the cab district attorney, is looking at it. So there's a lot of high-profile names. The question is who gets in first? Because um, and and the other question is beyond who gets in first. And Democrats really are pushing behind the scenes for the party to get behind one candidate because the best shot at winning this race might be in November rather than a January runoff. Exactly. So if the party can get behind one candidate and win it outright. Uh, they have a lot better shot ahead. Well, they have, they win rather than a runoff because no Democrat has won a runoff in decades in Georgia. Statewide and and that's what we saw in 2017 during the sixth district special election where you had, God, something like 17 candidates vying in that mm-hmm. jungle primary, just like we're going to have with this Isaacson race in, in 2020. Um, and, and the person who almost won it outright was John Ossoff, a, a Democrat and a first time candidate. He came, I believe, if my memory serves me, within 48 Yeah, points. 2% points of winning. And then once it became a, a runoff with him against Karen Handel, the, the Republicans could kind of rally behind Handel and then kind of 
you know, send all the money and resources her way. So I think Democrats are, are trying to make sure that they don't dilute support or, or, or it's kind of a, the field is, is spread really thin. Um, something else to keep in mind is that in the parallel contest for David Perdue's seat next year, you know, we have four Democrats, you know, hoping to, to challenge him next year, including John Ossoff. All four of them are white. And so there, mm-hmm. there's been talk about, you know, hopefully getting an African-American candidate in the Isaacson race. Um, you know, there, there has never been an African-American senator from Georgia. And this is kind of seen as, as kind of the key moment and, and the right race with an open seat. Yeah, especially when you're talking about energizing um, the party's base. I mean, look, the party's base will probably energize no matter what with President Trump on the ballot. But Stacey Abrams proved that you can go find a bunch of voters, a lot of a lot of voters who who are inactive, who who don't regularly vote. Unlikely, I should say, not inactive, but unlikely voters who don't usually vote in these contests, presidential or midterms, and and how effective it is trying to energize them, and mobilize them with 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 different messaging and with direct appeals, and so the, who whatever candidate, and it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, you know, a uh, man or woman or, or African American or white person, but certainly, I think the 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 if you gave a truth serum to the Democratic Party officials, they would love to see a white woman on one candidate ticket and an African American or white white man or woman on one ticket and an African American candidate on the other um, to try to you know to try to kind of get in gear the, the entire party base. Exactly. And, and, you know, part of another huge reason why they don't, you know, why they, they kind of need to win outright in November, as opposed to going to a January runoff is, like we were saying earlier, this is going to be the, the potentially the only contest going on in January 2021. So that means all the national attention is kind of poured into that race. And whoever... Um, lost the White House in November 2020, they're going to be out for blood in the same way that happened with the Ossoff contest in, in 2017. Yeah. So you, you really don't want to take that chance if you're a Democrat. And that's the reason there was, there was a, a series of behind the scenes private meetings not that long ago um, for, with, with national operatives who basically came down and didn't say don't run, do run, don't run, but they did say pretty strongly, this is what it's going to take to run. You know, it's going to take twenty million dollars. It's going to take someone who can withstand intense, intense media scrutiny. It's going to take someone who who has experience in, in high-profile situations, not necessarily a race like this, but but high-profile situations who can who can live up to all that all that scrutiny. It's going to be a lot. And and again, as you mentioned, the last thing Democrats need, want is what happened to Republicans in, in seventeen, because. A, 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 there was about a, a half dozen really, you know, viable Republican contenders and a bunch of others who were running, but the, those six or seven Republicans spent the entire run up to the to the first round of voting, attacking each other, while Ossoff kind of skated through. And if not for a lot of outside money focusing on Ossoff, he might have won that race outright. And that sort of potential for infighting for Democrats is what's keeping them up at night. That's why they want, ideally, the Democratic Party wants to get behind one candidate really early on. Exactly. And I think everyone is expecting record amounts of money being spent. I mean, especially having that dual dual Senate race with David Perdue coming in. And, and you have to imagine that that the governor's office is having the same conversation with a lot of these Republicans who are applying in their open casting call. You know, you have to be able to withstand all of this scrutiny. You have to be able to raise tens of millions of dollars. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out at the end of the day. And that's why as much as I've heard from some camp advisors who want to go outside the box, 
and, and go with someone who you know is more untested in the in the political realm it'll be really hard for it could be really hard for them to end up doing that because because of that very that the, the very scenario you just laid out i mean it's going to be real tough to go uh, find someone who's never run for for a high profile public office who hasn't been in front of banks of cameras who hasn't been pestered by us reporters relentlessly and followed on the campaign trail by trackers and and scrutinized for every word they will say because believe you me and we we've both been through this that's what's going to happen especially as we get close to you know flash forward to october or, or september of next year every single thing these guys do will be will be picked apart and and scrutinized and thrown on social media and turned into campaign ads and everything. And so uh, they're trying to get their ducks in a row too. Well, Tamar, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking, I think, a little bit more about the Senate race, these Senate races <laughs> between now and next year. Uh, but a, a, a lot of interesting developments this week. So thanks for uh, keeping us surprised of it all. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. The celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents. Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.